0: folks listen up i've got something crucial to share with you today in this uncertain world you need to be prepared for anything especially when it comes to your health that's where the wellness company comes in offering you peace of mind in a box with their medical emergency kit picture this you're faced with a medical emergency and you need quick effective treatment the wellness company's medical emergency kit is like having a strategic arsenal of life-saving medications right at your fingertips from proven treatments like ivermectin to generic z pax and amoxicillin this kit has got you covered But that's not all. Every kit comes with a medical emergency guidebook, ensuring you have the knowledge to use these medications safely and effectively. It's like having a medical professional right there with you when you need it most. And here's the kicker. Use code FFN to get 10% off your medical emergency kit at twc.health/ffn. That's right, folks. 10% off. Peace of mind in a box. Don't wait until it's too late. Get your medical emergency kit today and be ready for whatever comes your way. Stay safe. Stay prepared with a wellness company. Again, use code ffn to get 10% off your medical emergency kit at twc.health/ffn.
1: Welcome back. You're on with the two mics. This is going to be another great podcast. We know it. Enjoy it. Subscribe wherever you see us. Hit the button. Hey. I don't know what's up with the algorithms at Rumble, but I think we got tagged. So if you want to subscribe on Rumble, fine. We're on everybody else's platform. You can go from Apple to Spotify. Apple's doing very well. You can go anywhere you like, networkradio.us. Subscribe there. Get them up as soon as they go. They're up there first. And we thank you for listening. We thank you for being loyal followers, and we thank you for comments and the emails. So hang in for another great podcast.
2: Five, four, three, two, one. Hey, welcome back. You're on with two mics, Dr. Michael Shoyer and Colonel Mike. And before we get to today's guest, who you see on the screen, which we're very happy to have back, he has been on for a while, got a new book out. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about what's going on in America, tyranny. We'll talk about Lincoln because Tom's a historian and Mike is a historian. So that's going to be a good conversation. But before we go, it's dot U S. All right. Welcome. Welcome back, Tom DiLorenzo. How are you, Professor? I'm doing just fine. Uh, thanks for having me on again. Oh, it's great. You're looking great. Did you go out golfing or something? You're all tanned <laughs> up. Where'd you get the tan no, from? No, I, I did a week ago. Oh, <laughs> okay. Great. Okay. Why don't you do this? Uh, Tom, open up with uh, the latest book which you had published. Talk about that a little bit, and then we'll go right to Lincoln.
3: Okay. My latest book is The Politically Incorrect Guide to Economics. Put it up, put it um, up, and
2: put it up a little higher. There we go. Gotcha. This is what it looks like.
3: Yeah, published by Regnery. Uh, it's part of the series. You know, there's a whole series of politically incorrect guides. Yes, and it's in, uh, in keeping with the rest of the series. It's sort of an irreverent critique of uh, the economics profession and and, uh, and a lot of what they've done. Uh, I have a chapter, for example, called um, "The Fed Government's Boom and Bust Machine," and. Uh, and, and basically, one of the themes is that um, most economists that you see on TV or, re- or you read about in the Wall Street Journal or Journal and, and elsewhere, are basically look at themselves as advisors to government planners. And they're always coming up with schemes and plans for uh, how government can plan our lives more. And uh, there are exceptions, of course. There's the free market Chicago School and the free market Austrian School of Economics which is much more focused on simply understanding how the world works. And so I take on a lot of the the economics profession, which was from the very founding uh, in the 1880s, the founding document of the American Economic Association, the Association of Professional Academic Economists, condemned markets as uh, unsafe in practice and unsound in morals and recommended uh, sort of a Combination of church and state uh, government planning, uh, you know, cloaked with uh, religion. <laughs> now, that was the, the founding of the American Economic Association. And of course, they got away from that. They no longer <laughs> do that. But uh, my point is that it's always been an interventionist organization and academe. Uh, and so this political correctness has not escaped uh, the field of economics, even though it's one of the better. Uh, in terms of uh, academic disciplines, in, in terms of the the amount of craziness that
2: you see in the <laughs> universities, <laughs> well, Dr. Mike.
4: Well, so many of them, though. Tom seem to be surprised that we have so much debt and we're printing so much money that inflation is increasing. Right? I'm not, I'm not quite sure how that. What kind of education that's getting?
3: Yeah, I had a, I had a, I had another interview with Mike Huckabee, and he asked me. Uh, why is it that economists are always surprised? And and that's an interesting question because you see headlines all the time. (laughs) Economists are surprised at this or that. And I think the answer to that is because the economists he's thinking of or he's reading about are the ones that see themselves as sort of court historians, as advisors to the state, advisors to politicians. And of course, the type of advice politicians want is more debt, more spending, hidden taxes, uh, you know, uh, special interest politics uh, with the cost of everything hidden by money printing. That's, that's the kind of advice they want. And so if you're good at, at dreaming up rationales for all of that, then uh, there'll be a place for you in the government or as a, or as a government advisor. But if you're an honest economist, Um, you're out, you're out of luck. You're not going to be doing that. You you need to write books and teach. (laughs) Tom,
2: Tom, I usually, I usually talk about with Mike and other, some guests, Um, you know, these are lifetime grifters, the guys on the Hill that are supposed to be serving us. um, They're lifetime grifters and they get full-time pay, part-time work, full-time benefits on a bankrupted country. Sound right to you? And it sounds right to me.
3: I, I have an old friend that re- passed away last week. His name was Yuri multsev he, he was a Russian. He was the very last Russian uh, to escape the Soviet Union. The very last. Uh, uh, he worked for Gorbachev. You know, um, I've, I've lost the word. Uh, you know, um, senior Perestroika. Moment here.
4: Perestroika.
3: Yeah, he worked on Perestroika with Gorbachev. And he he defected. He was, I think he was he was actually literally the very last Russian defector in 1989 and he once said when he when he first came to America I met him very early on and I've known him I knew him all these years and he said uh, don't you know the purpose of government is to take bribes and he he said the, the U.S. government is is just as corrupt as the Soviet government was and, and he was so fed up with it that even though he was a, a top government employee and an advisor to Mikhail Gorbachev he defected he left the he was giving a speech in Finland, and uh, and he told the Finns, uh, "Make me an offer, because he had he had been uh, <laughs> he had been criticizing Gorbachev." And so, of course, they brought him to the U.S. embassy, and then to Sweden, and uh, and he ends up uh, debriefing the CIA about the size of the Soviet economy. And he, he my, and my friend Yuri, by the way, is he uh, he told me the story that he uh, he debriefed Dick Cheney when he was the defense secretary. And told him the Soviet economy, this is 1989. He said, told him the Soviet economy was no more than 5% of the US economy. And Cheney said, well, our CIA says it's more like 65%. Maybe it's somewhere in between 5 and 65%. And my friend Yuri said, it was insisting, no, no, 5% is a number. And he said, Cheney just responded by saying sweet, and the word yeah. sweet. But anyway, I I, went, I told that story. Yuri's on my mind since so he passed away last week. And, and but he and one of the things, the very first things he said that I that I remember was, uh, government is all about taking bribes, and that's basically what they do in Washington, isn't
2: it? Well, well look at, yeah. Look at Ukraine now, right, uh, Tom? Yeah. Uh, look at the Ukraine. We we've yes. never known about the Ukraine like we've had now. And it's hundreds of billions of dollars. We just keep printing money. So you can imagine between, and Michael explained about the bioweapons, but you can imagine over the years how many administrations touched the Ukraine.
3: Oh, yes, all of them. It's, a, it's very odd, isn't it, that all of a sudden uh, Ukraine is the, the, uh, the, the last best hope on earth. Uh, <laughs> so we're, So we're told. It's a giant money laundering operation in many, many ways. As you, as I'm sure you guys know, and, uh, and it's not just the defense contractors that are making all the money by sending them all this uh, technology and equipment, but uh, the political class is, is enriching itself, and they'll be building either, even bigger mansions in McLean now as a result that's, of this. That's, that's right. <laughs>
1: Hey, this is Colonel Mike here for Two Mikes. We're getting the shows up as soon as possible. And uh, you just go to networkradio.us and you see the uh, all the shows that we have going up. And as soon as we finish a show, what we do is we send it over to the producers and then the producers will send it over to networkradio.us. It'll be up there first. And eventually they'll be on the other platforms. So, you know, we always say people email, hey, where, where do we go? Where do we, You know, that we're all over the web. You can Google us, it's Two Mikes. But you have to do two mics, Colonel Mike, Dr. Mike. There's a couple of other shows on the web, two mic shows. So remember, it's networkradio.us up there first. Hey, don't forget to subscribe wherever we are. Also, this way you get the notifications. You could do that right on network radio. And as soon as they're up, you'll get the fresh show. And again, thanks, Father.
4: The, the idea that... Government can do anything, I think, is is generally falling apart in this country, and deservedly so. And and on the point of your friend, there was no more stronger supporter of the Soviet Union than the Soviet division of uh the CIA. They would constantly argue against reality. Yeah. Uh, the Soviets would be going down economically. No, they're doing fine. Yeah. They're spending they're spending their gold to buy Canadian wheat to send to the Afghans. Nah, that's not gonna hurt them. It's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I, I think they're the only they were the only game in town. And also the Soviet departments of the other agencies that also always saw the Soviet economy much better than it ever was. Yeah. When, when the Russians stole that that their, their, their these those documents, they must have been shocked at how good they were doing and they didn't know it. <laughs>
3: Yeah, and that's true. It's uh, and a lot of American academics fell for the phony baloney. And I remember at the time the CIA was saying I mean, there are news articles quoting CIA sources that their economy was 65 percent of the U.S. economy. And Paul Samuelson, the famous uh, Nobel Prize-winning economist from uh, MIT, who wrote you know his famous textbook, his introductory economics textbook was the biggest seller in the market for 40 years, beginning in 1948. <laughs> and in the 1988 edition, he predicted that by the year 2000, the Soviet economy would be bigger than the U.S. economy. <laughs> this was 1988. And, of course, so one year later, the so- the, uh, the Soviet Union began to implode altogether. And and he apparently uh, just accepted uh, CIA statistics, I guess, or maybe even the Russian. Russian statistics, Soviet statistics on the size of their economy.
2: We had a guest on earlier today. We spoke about the Soviet Union era, who, you know, I think was at the Soviet desk for a while. And we're doing what we did to the Soviet Union by breaking their back with Reagan's policy is letting them spend, spend, spend kind of thing. We're doing it to ourselves now. You know, we're just we, we can't burn the money fast enough. We can't print it fast enough. We can't cry fast enough. Like you said, it's the only game in town because. That's the only laundromat open. Now, tomorrow, if it was in Hungary or Poland or Brazil, wherever, we'd be there. Hey, that's, that. they need democracy just as much as anybody. Look at this, Tom. Two tours, right, Mike? Victoria Nuland, the Orange Revolution. She's back for tour number two. You remember, she put $5 million at the time with Soros to turn the country upside down. Now she's round two. I mean, she's, she's so good at it, they put her back in power because she's the ATM for America. Huh.
4: Yeah, it's <laughs> just about Great. right
3: yeah, I get the impression that um, the, the ruling class thinks that it's sort of the end game here, that the financial system is going to implode and it's, it's going to be all over for them. Maybe, maybe not next year, but sometime before too long, because they seem especially desperate with the looting and plundering going on in Ukraine and, and, and everywhere else. They've come up with a new theory called modern monetary theory, which is really 17th century mercantilism that, that basically claims that uh, uh, there is a free lunch after all. And the government can just print as much money as it wants and and, and, and spend uh, unlimited amounts on ev- anything and everything. And they call that a modern theory. I call it Zimbabwean monetary theory <laughs> myself because that's really what it is. But it seems like it comes from desperation. I think we better get it get it now. We better get as much as we can get now, because maybe ten years from now, uh, there won't be much left to get.
2: All right, good. Let's wrap that up. We'll have a future conversation on economics. This is a good conversation, huh, Mike.
4: Yeah the, the the one the one thing I wanted to ask on this question is how are your uh, colleagues in the industry or in the in the profession uh, uh, looking at your book or reviewing it or or talking about it.
3: Uh, well, it's selling pretty well, and I've had a couple of emails from uh, economics professors saying this is this is great. I'm using this book in a class on uh, current economic events, and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and it's a good way to teach undergraduates about free market economics and uh, government intervention. I have uh, uh, several chapters on uh, the economics of government failure in, in, in my new book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Economics.
4: It'd be a great book for for undergraduates and the and, uh, upper level undergraduates. I think it'd be yeah, a, a real antidote agree, to some of, this, <laughs> some of this stuff. <laughs> the other thing I, I just wanted to mention that it's funny they wheeled out an admiral. I think that admiral who is the press spokesman for the Defense Department the other day. Oh, Popeye Popeye, yeah. any admiral yeah. to explain that. Oh, we don't have any worries about the Ukrainians uh selling guns to other people that we've given them instead of using them on the battlefield <laughs> and you know you know ukraine has been since the end of the soviet union the biggest gun runner in in europe and i and you know i'm just kind of hopeful that s- some of the europeans are buying guns and maybe they can take on their governments a little as they try to destroy what's left of uh uh open markets and democracy in in europe so but the idea that that the the European or the Ukrainians are are keeping track of every bullet and every tank and every airplane or whatever we send them is just idiocy. But these people have no shame; they they don't mind looking like idiots.
3: Yeah. Yeah, from what I've been reading, uh, every time someone like Rand Paul says we need to audit how this money is being spent, he gets shouted down by the the media or other members of co- Congress. It's sort of like suggesting we should audit the Fed. You know, heaven <laughs> yeah. forbid We should ever
2: do that? Yeah, you can't. You can't audit the Fed. You can't audit, In fact, that that word's going out of the dictionary now. It's going to get a gender. There's going to be yeah. a gender name for that. It's yeah. going to be, yeah, like, be no like no Like the mafia. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go to Lincoln now, uh, Tom. I don't think a lot of our listeners, especially our younger listeners and our listeners around the globe, understand. What is going on in America today with freedoms? Mike wants to talk about that with tyranny and freedoms. And you can give us an update on how it was back in the day with a president named Abraham Lincoln, which I think every one of our international listeners know who he is.
4: I wonder if all of our American listeners know who he is, the way they're teaching history these days.
2: Oh, yeah, of course. That's a natural, Mike. But I mean, everybody, when we have the conversation about civil war or Lincoln, Mike, we get a big response from global. Yeah. So go ahead, Tom. Just get, try to you know weave it in here. Yeah, well, I think um, m-
3: most Americans are ignorant about Abraham Lincoln. Uh, they're, they're all, all they know is a few slogans that were all taught in elementary school. And uh, and uh, you know how many uh, average Americans do you think have ever actually read one book about Lincoln, even though most of the books are pretty bad? <laughs> they're hagiographies, as they're called. Yes. But uh, p- p- the big part of the story that is swept under the rug about Lincoln is that He was a part of the the Hamiltonian political tradition in America. It started, you know, at the beginning of the Republic. There was the great debates between Hamilton and Jefferson. Jefferson was the the, uh, foremost advocate of limited, decentralized government. He said uh, government needed to be bound by the chains of the Constitution. Hamilton was the opposite. Hamilton wanted unlimited government as long as smart people like him were in charge. And basically, in, in Hamilton's view of the Constitution, uh, you know, when it was finally ratified, he condemned it, he called it a frail and worthless fabric because it limited government too much. And so that set the template for the debate in America over the nature of politics. Do we want a more or less a British style system of a de facto monarchy with a very powerful president? That's what Hamilton wanted. He, he actually advocated a permanent president at the Constitutional Convention? Or is most of the power of government to be uh, reside in the citizens and the states uh, as, as discussed in the 10th Amendment to the Constitution? And Jefferson said that uh, the 10th Amendment is the, the most important part of the Constitution. And that battle went on for some 70 years after the founding, and uh, it was a, a political war, not a fighting war, not a shooting war, but then uh, Lincoln, was uh, the political son of Hamilton. He was a Whig politician for 25 years or so before becoming a Republican and uh, after the Whig party disappeared. And the Whigs basically wanted to use big government uh, uh, to benefit primarily big business. That's who they were. And that's also who the Republicans were of Lincoln's day. And uh, the one thing that that was the biggest limit on uh, the sort of unlimited expansion, maybe a couple things of the central government where the threat of nullification of unconstitutional laws by the states and the threat of secession, Uh, the uh, the advocates of secession, which was just about everyone before the civil war, peaceful secession, was that if the federal government knew that uh, if they got so out of control and, and violated the constitution so much, that any state or states would just secede, then they wouldn't pass so much unconstitutional legislation. And so they, they saw it as a break on, on sort of despotic government, the same thing with nullification. Okay, and, but to, and that all ended, of course, the Civil War ended secession by violence and, and, and null, the whole idea of nullification, which was practiced by people of North and South before the Civil War, And then another thing that happened was that before the Civil War, uh, we had three uh, branches of government, uh, the legislative, the judicial, and the executive. But after the Civil War, the federal government announced that constitutional interpretation is now a monopoly of the federal judiciary alone. But before that, the president had a say, the Congress had a view of constitutionality, and the citizens of the states all had an equal view. When, uh, when John Marshall, the Chief Justice, uh, said that the Bank of the United States, which was a precursor of the Fed, was constitutional, uh, Andrew Jackson, President Andrew Jackson, uh, essentially said, thank you for your opinion, but my opinion is different and my opinion is just as valid as your opinion. That's the way things were. We did, we did not have black robe deities, uh, five government lawyers with lifetime tenure who would announce what everyone's freedoms are to be. That ended with the Civil War. So ever since the Civil War, the federal government uh, had a monopoly in constitutional interpretation. And uh, and, and the Jeffersonians had always warned that if that day ever came, Americans would be living under a tyranny. And uh, as Judge Andrew Napolitano pointed out in one of his books, I think it was the Constitution in Exile, from 1935 until 1995, according to Judge Napolitano, not a single federal law was ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. So they pretty much rubber stamp everything the government does nowadays. That's the Hamiltonian Constitution. and But it was Lincoln who ushered this in. It would never have happened had, had Lincoln not come along and did what he did.
2: Mike There's, that sounds that sounds like the FDR story Mike.
4: Yeah. It's it's you know it it's so important I think for people to realize how how much change came out of the civil war and became encased in not only um history but protected by the whole issue of slavery on top of it. Anything yes. criticized that came out of the civil war they just they move the chairs and all of a sudden you're going, you're asking for the restitution of slavery.
3: Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a great little book uh, by Robert Penn Warren, you know, famous author of All the King's Men. He was asked by uh, uh, Life magazine, I think it was in 1960, to write a book on uh, the sort of the, the legacy of the Civil War. And so he did.
0: Hey there, freedom-loving carnivores. It's Jeff Dornick from Freedom First Network, and I've got a message for you. Are you tired of feeling like your beef choices are under siege? Well, fellow patriots, it's time to fight back with Prepper All Naturals. That's right, folks. In a world where the beef industry is under constant attack, Prepper All Naturals is here to stand tall and proud as a veteran-owned beacon of quality, taste, and freedom. When the guys at Prepper All Natural set out to provide you with the finest beef products, they knew they had a duty to defend America's beef legacy, and that's why we're proud to partner with them, bringing you the best of what this great land has to offer. Whether it's their succulent freeze-dried beef cubes or their premium freezer boxes packed with steaks and roasts, we're redefining what it means to enjoy beef today and tomorrow. And let me tell you folks, their freeze-dried beef isn't just delicious, it's built to last. With proper stores, their beef cubes can maintain their quality and freshness for up to a decade, ensuring you'll never have to compromise on taste or nutrition. But wait, there's more. They're not just in the business of selling beef, they're in the business of defending freedom. That's why they promise to never sell you anything less than 100% all-American natural beef. No lab-grown imposters, no experimental jabs, and certainly no compromises with the woke agenda. So, fellow beef enthusiasts, join us in our mission to protect America's beef legacy. Visit freedomfirstbeef.com and use code FFM for 15% off your order. Because when you choose Prepper All Naturals, you're not just eating well today, you're eating well tomorrow. And together, we'll ensure that beef remains a symbol of freedom for generations to come. Prepper All Naturals, where beef meets freedom. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.
3: And I think that's the title, "A Legacy of the Civil War. And he said, uh, he pointed out that what the Civil War did was it created what he called a a treasury of virtue on the part (laughs) of the federal government. And such that anything the federal government did from then on was virtuous by definition, because it was the federal government that was doing it. And uh, and he said and then in in the same book, he says, but we have to forget a lot of history. We have to forget that in his first inaugural address, Abraham Lincoln pledged his support for a constitutional amendment that would have forever prohibited the federal government from ever interfering in southern slavery. We have to forget that in the Lincoln-Douglas debates, Abraham Lincoln said, and I quote, I, as much as any man, want the superior position to belong to the white race. That's a direct quotation from Abraham Lincoln. We have to forget that Abraham Lincoln supported the Fugitive Slave Act, which forced Northerners to run down runaway slaves and return them to their owners. There was a bounty on the head of the slaves, and and the federal magistrates were paid Ten bucks for if they decided to return the slave to his owner. Five bucks if they said uh, if they didn't. And you don't have to have a Ph.D. in economics like me to figure out the incentive effects of that, <laughs> that that situation. So we have to forget all these things about history to believe in this treasury of virtue. And Robert Penn Warren went on to say that well, this was used to justify the Spanish-American War, the entry into World War One, world entry into World War II, Anything the federal government does became virtuous, and that, that of course, was not at all the case before the Civil War. In fact, there's a historian named Larry Tagg, L-T-A-G-G, who wrote a, a book called The Unpopular Mr. Lincoln. And the subtitle is America's Most Reviled President, and he documents with uh, uh, original sources that during his lifetime, In the North, Lincoln was by far the most hated and reviled of all American presidents, in the North. Of course, you would assume Southerners hated Lincoln, invaded their country. And so, but this was in the North, but that all changed after the war, after he was assassinated, the Republican Party with the help of the New England clergy deified him. Uh, The Secretary of War took over the the corpse from Mrs. Lincoln and ordered that the, the head not be touched So that it would look as gruesome as possible when he took it on a 1600 mile train ride on display to show the the American public to generate even more hatred toward the Southern Democrats, so that after the to assure that there would be a Republican Party monopoly, which there was for 60 years after the end of the Civil War, basically. Uh, Grover Cleveland was sort of a uh, an outlier you know he was president for two terms but uh, other than other than that the republican party ruled the roost until Woodrow Wilson came along and so uh, the, the theme of this book is that lincoln was deified there's even an old harper's magazine um, lithograph that i used to use in my public presentations uh, to get a laugh and it was a picture of an angel ascending to heaven with angel's wings and at the bottom of the picture is an open tomb, and the head of the angel is Abraham Lincoln. (laughs) This is Harper's Magazine, short in the late 1860s, and uh, there's a whole book called The Deification of Lincoln. It was published in the 40s, and and the author says that his mother, Lincoln's mother, uh, was portrayed as being the um, uh, the the biggest virgin since the uh, the most chaste woman since the Virgin Mary herself <laughs> so everything about Lincoln was just blown it's out remarkable. of proportion even <laughs> though he himself was a, was an atheist he was all, all, all of a sudden he's the new
2: son of God. Hey Tom uh, uh, are you familiar with the West Virginia uh, R- Republican Party? They were basically where were they Mike in the in the closet for 88 years yes, The Democrats man. ruled the, the West Virginia politics for 88 years and along came a bunch of guys who decided to knock it over you know once bird died and uh, they got it i think eight or ten years now uh but you know back then it was the same thing they moved the capital from wheeling when they broke away from virginia they moved the capital from wheeling down to charleston and then um you know finally the republicans get it and now it's like oh gosh what do we do now and it's the it's it's Is yes.
4: I think he I think he lost the volume. <laughs> huh. He hit the mute button, I think.
3: Yeah, well, when, when, the you know, it was Lincoln, West Virginia was the last slave state to enter the Union, and it was orchestrated by Lincoln, the yeah. secession of West Virginia. And during the war, it was governed by the Republican Party out of Alexandria, Virginia. And uh, and so that was the last slave state to enter the Union. And Lincoln's position for West Virginia is the same as his position everywhere else. We don't care if you keep your slaves as long as you're part of the Union and you pay federal taxes.
4: Yeah. What do you say? I'd like to have God on my side, but I must have the border states.
3: Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. What what will become of my revenue? He, he once said, uh, to, about uh, To Alexander Stevens.
4: It's a it's a whole story about war, too, isn't it? The war to this runaway power and runaway spending and runaway uh, autocracy is really yeah. war. Is the, is the is it's the gift of war, really? Yeah,
3: you know, war is the health of the state. There's a famous uh, essay by Randolph Born, Bourne, yes. B-O-U-R-N-E, published around the World War One era. Uh, war is the health of the state, and that about how you know once we have an enemy that we're fighting in a real war. He said that uh, people tend to become childlike in their, in their brains, yes. and they want mommy and daddy to protect them. But in this case, mommy and daddy is the government. It's not the real mommy and daddy. And, and we tend to believe just about anything the government tells us. And, of course, the government has wised up. Now they can use pandemics or fake pandemics to have the same effect. They get the people to believe the the most bizarre lies they can tell.
4: That's exactly and, right.
3: Yeah, but 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 war and wartime was the beginning of that, and you know one of the things that I write that I've written about that you, you guys know with Lincoln is he illegally suspended the writ of habeas corpus and mass arrested tens of thousands of northern citizens for merely criticizing him. He redefined treason treason uh, from the Constitution to mean. Criticizing him and or his administration, and but the 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 definition of treason in the Constitution is very clear. It uses the word only, and it says levying war upon the United States or giving aid and comfort to their enemies. And the key word there is there yes. because it means plural states, plural. So levying war upon the United States may, means levying war upon Virginia. Massachusetts, Alabama, the states, not not something called the United States government in Washington, DC, but the sovereign states. And that, of course, is precisely what Lincoln did. And he is therefore guilty of treason, as was everybody else who voluntarily participated in the invasion of the southern states. They're all guilty of treason. But Lincoln took it upon himself to just rhetorically redefine it as criticism of him. He even said A man who sits quietly while his government is being discussed is guilty of treason. (laughs) And my my Russian friend Yuri, who I mentioned earlier, when I told him this, he said it was the same thing in the the Soviet Union. He had had a neighbor. He told me a story. He had a neighbor. Every morning she would open her windows and, and praise Gorbachev or whoever the dictator of the day was. And he asked her, why do you do this?" And he went, of course it's so so I'm not suspected I'm not supporting the Communist Party <laughs> and that, 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 but, that, but that was the same mindset that Lincoln had. but that started really with John Adams. the Adams administration, they passed the so-called Sedition Act that basically made free speech illegal
4: in yeah. America yeah.
3: And so you know the the, link, the ink was barely dry on the Bill of Rights and they they made free speech illegal. They arrested uh, journalists and other reporters, uh, supporters of the Jefferson. They even imprisoned a, a congressman from Vermont named Matthew Lyons, and uh, for criticizing uh, Adams, uh, Lyons uh, in, made a speech in Congress uh, in which John Adams, who was uh, uh, grossly overweight, he referred to Adams as his rotundity. <laughs> And, and apparently the story is that Abigail Adams threw a fit over that and, and was the impetus for imprisoning uh, Matthew Lyons. But Lyons got the uh, the last laugh when, when uh, the Jeffersonians, uh, uh, when Jefferson was elected, there was a tie in the House, tie vote, and Lyons broke the tie.
4: <laughs> and not for Adam's.
3: And Jefferson became president, yes. and the, the Sedition Act was uh, written into law so that it would expire on the day that uh, John Adams left office.
2: <laughs> hey, what do you think of this uh, January 6th prison gulag, or well, let's say gulag prison? Um, yeah, well, that's, that, that was
3: have? certainly reminiscent of Lincoln. Link, Lincoln had gulags. He had uh, 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 forts, a fort off the coast, uh, off of New York City. That was used uh, Fort McHenry uh, in Baltimore. It was used as a gulag where, where literally uh, the grandson of Francis Scott Key, who authored the, the Star Spangled Banner, was a newspaper editor who editorialized against the illegal suspension of habeas corpus, and he was thrown into prison at Fort McHenry, where his, uh, near where his grandfather wrote the Star Spangled Banner. Yeah, and so there were there were do- uh, dozens, maybe even hundreds. Of newspaper editors who were arrested. And some newspapers were literally destroyed. The the machinery, the printing machinery, was destroyed by Republican Party mobs in the northern states during those days. And and what's the January 6th business is not nearly that severe. But over and over and over again, whenever I see politicians uh, starting to quote Abraham Lincoln, I know something really bad is going to happen. Yeah. There's going to be a new unjust war, uh, a new attack on civil liberties. Uh, years ago, Newt Gingrich published an article in the Wall Street Journal called Lincoln and Bush. And I, I knew this this was going to be bad. And he, <laughs> uh, he advocated that the U.S. government invade Iraq, Iran, Libya, Syria, and one or two other countries all at the same time. You know, uh, this was Newt Gingrich. And he said, because he was saying, this is when uh, Bush was president, Bush too. And he said, that's what Lincoln would have done, which which was ridiculous. I, I really don't think Lincoln would have done anything <laughs> that stupid and crazy. But uh, but, but, but then, you know, the Gingrich, you know, he, he always brands, I'm historian. I have a PhD in history, so I you know, I speak the truth. But that was nonsense. So whenever we see, uh, especially Republican politicians, voting Lincoln like this, you know something's bad is about to happen. When, when Musharraf, the former dictator of Pakistan, uh, uh, brought in martial law, he quoted Lincoln. He said, "Well, Lincoln did this in America, so it must be a good idea. We can do it here in Pakistan."
4: <laughs> you know, it's it's funny when you go back to read what they actually said. I, I I've been reading quite a bit lately about Lindbergh, the flyer. Yes, and uh, he got railroaded. Uh, because he opposed entry into World War II, which he thought was not of any use to us—it's Europeans' business. Yes, and uh, he he gave a, st- a speech in 1941 in Des Moines, Iowa, and he said the three there's only three groups that are agitating for war in this country, and that's the Roosevelt administration, the British and their intelligence services, and the Jewish Americans. And and from then from that day till this day, he's an anti-Semite. But, when you read, but you when you read about the collaboration between Hollywood, which at that time was was maybe now still, but at that time was the, all the leaders were Jewish Americans. And to, to make movies that reinforced the idea of the danger of Hitler in a disguised manner in, in, in movies with Errol Flynn, with Gary Cooper, it's this, this business of setting people up and attacking them by the federal government. Is extraordinarily long in this country, as just as you said about the Alien and Sedition Acts and, and the rest right. of it. Yes, it's,
3: yes, they would not they would have to imply that the critics of the Adams administration were some, uh, you know, f- uh, foreign spies or foreign yes. insurrectionists. Yeah, yeah, that's a long history. Well, Roosevelt himself was a very anti-Semitic in his policies. you probably heard the famous stories of once the Holocaust was occurring. Um, he refused to allow, you know, some ships with Jewish refugees uh, to land in, in America. And, and so,
2: uh, yeah. Yeah, and then, he, I, then I think he flooded his administration with a lot of German Jews and Jews that were fleeing anyway. Eventually, he had a lot of Jewish people within his administration because they put in all these social policies. Um, you know, it, it's, Mike talks about Hollywood back in the day in Berlin. You know, what was Hitler doing early on? I mean, he was telling them, hey, listen, we had World War One. We got to strengthen these young boys. He didn't have drag queen shows. He didn't have the stuff we're doing yeah. now in America. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, as far hey, as listen, we know. <laughs>
4: yeah, as <first> far we know.
2: <laughs> well, it's true. It's true. It could be on the cover at the time.
3: Yeah. yeah. Have you ever seen the Mel Brooks movie where he had a skit called Springtime for Hitler? Yes. Oh, Yeah. 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 <laughs>
2: It's a wonderful movie, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Um. Uh, but here's the other thing I want to say about Newt Gingrich, uh, which both of you didn't mention. So I'll, I'll mention it. He did give us Most Favored Nation with China. He was, <laughs> yeah. he was really great on that one. Yeah. He, he thought it was the best thing he has ever done. And it's just in the time that we got Most Favored Nation with China, they built more bridges, have more. Uh, uh, coal fire plants. They did everything we used to do to become an industrialized nation, and they did it in a shorter time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that was, uh, you know,
3: back in the day when Clinton was president. Uh, I remember reading these articles that uh, there were Chinese, quote, businessmen who were bundling donations for the Clinton mm-hmm.
4: campaign. And and,
3: and the that, media, I, of course, uh, said, oh, there's nothing there, nothing,
4: nothing to see here. You know, walk, walk I think along. one of them was sent up the river, I think. Yeah. One of them went to prison. Those yeah, I think one one funders. of
3: them did. But uh, but I but whenever you whenever you read something like that, uh, you know the first thing the Repub- some of the Republicans will say is, well, "Where's mine?" Yeah. <laughs> they'll, they'll, they'll criticize Clinton for taking money from Chinese communists, but then, <laughs> well, where's ours? Let's let's get in on it. Yes. Well, our,
2: we we call it we call it the establishment. We call it the American yeah. Chamber of Commerce. That's what we yeah, call it.
3: Yeah, the, the unit party that some people. Well, call
2: well now about. it's it's total unit party. So Tom, in your I don't know, I guess in your uh, crystal ball or eight ball, what do you see? How many years do we have at the rate we're going? Well, I used to say that I
3: think uh, secession will probably occur after my lifetime, but uh, I'm amending my view. And I think I might live long enough to see a state or states (laughs) secede. We're seeing sort of a soft secession now, people fleeing New York and California and Illinois and going to Florida, Texas, uh, South Carolina, places like that, that are not quite as uh, crazy, and, are, and still have where you can still find real America uh, in, in, in places like that. And so, but I, I don't know. Uh, I don't think we're ready for actual literal secession of a state or states. But I think that's the only the only way out, uh, or other than other than mass, massive nullification. Or if the, the financial system does collapse, like the like the Soviets, um, we'll be at a finally at a turning point where we have to go one way or the other: more freedom or more more tyranny. And and we know more tyranny is not going to work. And so, but that would mean we'd have to have uh, quite a few different countries inside uh, the continent.
2: What about A.P. Hill? You have any statement about what they did to A.P. Hill's body?
3: Yeah, that's a that's a disgusting disgrace, uh, isn't it? That, that they they're, they're doing this, uh, and these these people are uh, you know the American Taliban, and uh, and I think it's it's just a disgusting disgrace that they also that there are no Republicans that, that have had any kind of influence to even talk about it, let alone stop stop all of this. Uh, uh, the same Republicans who criticized the Taliban in, in Afghanistan when they began blowing up statues of Buddha and things like that 20 years ago, uh, we're doing the same thing, and they're and they're letting it happen. And and of course, you know, as as you know, after the Civil War, there was a great effort for reconciliation for decades, many decades. Uh, President Eisenhower lived the end of his life in the Gettysburg battlefield. And uh, he once said uh, his uh, the three most of his most famous Americans were uh, Lincoln, uh, Washington, and Robert E. Lee. Yes, and 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 we had all these efforts for decades, and of course it had the noble uh, objective of reconciliation of North and South, and, and the honoring of of the, the 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 soldiers on both sides. But now we're supposed to just go on steroids, you know, demonization of everything related to the South on steroids. And I'm convinced that the, the real reason behind that has nothing to do with race. It's because the Southerners were the only people to seriously threaten the, uh, the central state, the, the omnipotence of the central state.
4: That's exactly and we right. Never,
3: and we can never let anything like that happen again, is the thinking.
4: Well, it has to happen again, hopefully peacefully, but it's got to happen. Again. Yes. Yeah. Democrats have never it, – it, it's not the, that they're, – they're they're no different than the Democrats that rule the South in many ways. But, you know, when Lee walked off the battlefield at, at Appomattox, the war was over. And it, for nothing else, he was the symbol of the South, and he should always be revered as the man who stopped that war, because there were other people ready to keep, you know, plugging away. Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. – uh, I think I also think that uh, didn't Eisenhower keep a picture of General Lee in, in his White House office? In he the, did. Yes,
3: he did. Yeah, I've media. seen that picture many times on the web. You can find yeah. it uh, on the web in, two, in 10 seconds. Yeah. 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 Imagine that today. Yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, okay. we don't have any real generals today, anyway, Tom. I mean, what yeah. we got there is. You know, Lollapaluzes in the ballerina suits. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know they got they got embroidery and you know valor, virtue, and you know they look what they're doing to the military. They, I mean, it's just it's a slow, slow burn. It's the frog yeah. in the pot. What's going on in the country?
1: Yeah,
3: and yeah. Uh, that's we that's always why, appreciate. Uh,
2: that's- Go ahead. That's Peter. why
3: military recruitment is what the lowest in uh, 50 years or something yes. like that.
2: Uh, yes. Well, look at look at all these look at all these people in America, young and old. They we stand with Ukraine. It was flags outside every house in <laughs> McLean and, and northern Virginia, the beltway. You know, we stand with Ukraine. You go through these beautiful little towns in Virginia. We stand with you. Why don't you stand with Kentucky when they have a tornado? Why don't yeah. you stand with Florida when they have a tornado? I mean, nobody stands with <laughs> Americans. It's just they don't even know what they're standing for.
3: Yeah, you know? you know, my my minister says uh, no, we don't stand with Ukraine. We stand with America.
4: Oh, that's great! That's fantastic. You yeah. ought to give yeah. some airtime.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I have a friend. I have a friend who's on board. He's sort of a typical sort of a, a Republican. He's not a politician, but he <clears throat> he stands with Ukraine. I asked him how much of his personal uh, income he's donated
2: to Ukraine, and of course, the answer right, is right. zero. They yeah. stand with giving your money away. So, in other <clears throat> right. words. Yeah. What, we, what we were just talking about, it's almost like what the John Birch Society is doing. They're trying to have, they're trying to, uh, it's the, what is it, Convention of States. They're trying to explain to people, go at number six versus five. And you got guys like Mark Levin and others who are saying, no, we got to do a Convention of States with number five, which would basically give everybody, well, it's your turn when you're in power. And it's my turn when my, I'm in power. And then uh, it really goes upside down at that point. Yeah. You know, I think that's exactly right. That's exactly what would happen. Well, there, JBS is what I think, number six. They're not with five. We're going to yeah. wrap it up. Tom, thanks so much for coming back on. Yes,
4: thank it. you. It's always good to have you answer.
2: Uh, likewise. It's always fun talking to you guys.
4: Good. Well, thanks thank for having you.
2: me. <clears throat> thank oh. you. And you're welcome back anytime you want to do a little bit more on the book, a little bit more on Lincoln. I think from time to time, as as we're in this quagmire with our government, you should come on. Mike and you do a little bit more Lincoln, a little bit more tyranny, uh, because it's not just the American listener, it's our international audience that really, believe it or not, we get a lot of big comments uh, with the Civil War conversation. A lot of countries follow that.
3: Yeah, I bet, I bet. Uh, when my book, The Real Lincoln, first came out in oh, 2002, been over 20 years now, I recall getting emails from Europe saying, well, we were taught all these things here in Europe. Uh, aren't Americans taught these things? And and, and uh, of course the answer is no. <laughs> and so a lot of oh, Europeans know no better, know more about American history than a lot of most Americans.
2: Have a great day. Thanks so much.
3: Okay. Take care.